Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Our text this Lord's Day will be Galatians 3, 6 through 9. And uh, if you're new to Bloomfield Baptist Church, we've been uh, walking through the book of Galatians together. This is Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia. Uh, He had started the church there. He had shared the gospel there. People had come to faith. Uh, But after he left Galatia and went to plant churches in other cities, uh, there came people who were false teachers uh, who came in behind Paul and taught a false gospel. And essentially what they were teaching was that faith in Jesus Christ alone was not sufficient to save. But in order to truly be saved and be a part of the people of God, you had to do works. And specifically, you had to do works required from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. And so Paul is writing to clarify, to correct, and really to call out those who were preaching a false gospel. Now, these were Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians who were trying to impose, essentially, Judaism on these new Gentile believers. And so last Lord's Day... Uh, We looked at the beginning of Galatians 3 there and how Paul uh, presented a series of questions uh, to help the Galatians remember that they were saved by the gospel, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at the last question he asked, which pertains to Abraham's faith, and then how he teaches them about true saving faith and Abraham as an example of that faith. And so uh, we're actually going to reread verse 5, read through verse 9 there, and add a reverence for God's Word. If you're able to, if you would stand as I read the text for us this Lord's Day. We stand because this is God's inspired Word to us, and this is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You would pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word today. It is what we need. It is our daily bread. And so Father, help us to eat from it today. Help us to learn from it today. And Lord, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw us to conviction, to repentance to understanding and applying the truth of your word today and what it really means to have saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Faith is a word that Paul mentions quite a few times in his letter to the Galatians, 23 to be exact, and 15 of those are in chapter 3. Uh, Just in the passage we just looked at, verse 5, he talks about hearing with faith. faith. Verse 7, those of faith. Verse 8, he says God will justify the Gentiles by faith. Verse 9, those who are of faith. And then he points to Abraham, the man of faith. The question, therefore, we should ask is, what is faith? I mean, faith is a word that is used in our culture all the time. You hear references to people of faith systems of faith you hear about people who have a very strong faith a very personal faith but the question is what is this word faith now the way our culture looks at faith is rather ambiguous 
In fact, I think a good worldly, cultural definition of faith is this. Faith is believing in what you want to believe, yet you cannot prove. Our culture often looks at our Christian faith this way. Many people look at it as a blind faith, a faith that you don't need to prove, a faith you don't need evidence for. It's just something you take on faith. The question is, is this what the Apostle Paul was speaking of? And I think it certainly is not. In fact, when we look to the Greek language here, this word that's used for faith means this. The state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Listen to that again. The state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Faith in the Scripture is to put our trust in one who has proven themselves to be trustworthy. It is not a blind faith we have. It is a seeing faith we have. When Paul speaks of faith, he's not talking about a whimsical desire. He's not talking about just believing in something you want to believe in, even if you don't have evidence for it. No, he is actually pointing to the evidence of faith from those who've gone before us. He's pointing us to the promises and the work of God. He's pointing us in the direction that the writer of Hebrews points us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, that can mislead us into thinking the writer of Hebrews here is talking about some blind faith. After all, he says the convictions of things not seen. But if you read Hebrews, specifically chapter 11, you realize that the writer of Hebrews here goes on to tell us about all kinds of things we can see. And he goes through that chapter of faith and he points out, look at all the ways that God has moved through salvation history. He is entirely trustworthy. So when you look ahead to a future that may seem uncertain, a future that you can't fully see, you can trust in the one who holds it. God has proven himself trustworthy. Therefore, we can indeed have faith in him. Essentially, the writer of Hebrews is saying this, because of the way God has worked in the past, we can trust God for the future, even though we can't see the future. The great pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul, who passed away this last year, he said it this way, the idea is this, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but I know that God knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So if God promises that tomorrow will bring something, and if I trust God for tomorrow, I have faith in something I have not seen. That faith serves as evidence because God is the object of my faith. I know Him. He has a track record. He is infallible and He never lies. God knows everything and is perfect in whatever He communicates. So if God tells me that something's going to happen tomorrow, I believe it even though I haven't seen it yet. Friends, we are not called to have a blind faith. Saving faith is not a blind faith. So what is saving faith? Well, that's what we're going to look at as we walk through this passage, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Abraham is an example of saving faith from the Old Testament. Paul points to Abraham. Verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul here is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. 
In Genesis chapter 15, God is making his covenant with Abraham. So why is Paul then, later in writing to the Galatian believers, to deal with the heresy of the Judaizers, going all the way back to Genesis 15 to talk about Abraham? Well, I think chances are that what Paul is doing is he is going back to Abraham because the Judaizers have likely been twisting the scripture regarding Abraham and what they've been telling the Galatians. And they would do it this way. The Judaizers were teaching the the Galatians and other Gentile believers that in order to be truly God's people, you needed to be sons of Abraham. And in order to be sons of Abraham, you needed to do the things that Abraham did. And specifically, you needed to be circumcised. Now, this was a problem that plagued the early church with these Judaizers. In fact, we read about it in Acts 15.1, where we see this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were teaching the custom of Moses that was built on, based on a command given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God gave this command as a sign to his people that served two purposes. One, it was to mark his people and set them apart from all the pagan nations around them. It was to show them, you are special, you are set apart, you are holy, and they are not. It also was specifically a sign that pointed towards a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise that an offspring would come who would crush the head of the enemy. This sign in particular pointed towards that promise and that offspring. But what the Judaizers were doing is they were saying, listen, you need to take this command that Abraham was given, and unless you too follow this command that Abraham was given, you can't truly be a follower of God. In essence, what they were doing is saying, you need to take this old covenant sign, and you need to apply it to new covenant salvation. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. In fact, what Paul's doing here by citing Galatians 15 is he's helping them to understand the order of how these things were given. We often ask that rhetorical question, uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, in this case, you might say, what came first, the command or the covenant? See, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It wasn't until Genesis chapter 17 that he gave him that command regarding circumcision. So what Paul was saying is, listen, God declared Abraham righteous before he ever gave him this command to obey. Therefore, righteousness cannot be a result of following this particular old covenant command. And and that is exactly what the Judaizers had been teaching. And so what Paul is helping the Judaizers to understand is that saving faith is what leads to salvation and Abraham is an example of saving faith. It is faith that saves in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the question that comes to mind sometimes, people ask us, well, well how were people saved in the Old Testament? If Jesus isn't, doesn't live his, his earthly ministry and, and go to the cross and be resurrected until the New Testament, how are people in the Old Testament saved? And Paul here is saying very clearly how they're saved. They're saved by placing their faith in the promises of God. 
In the Old Testament, people were saved by placing their faith in the promises of God. In the New Testament, people were saved by placing their faith in the promises of God. Today, you and I are saved by placing our faith in the promises of God. This is what saving faith looks like. And there is absolutely no room to add works into that equation because the minute you add works to it, you are trusting in something other than Christ. And you're trusting in something other than God for your salvation. Because saving faith rests in the promises of God, not the performance of man. Which brings us to that second point there in your outline. Saving faith rests in God's promises, not man's performance. And notice what Paul says here in verses 7 and 8. Know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now this is an important phrase because the Jewish people prided themselves on being sons of Abraham. Now we live in a day and age when People do all types of family trees, all types of genealogy. You can take these uh, uh, mail-to-your-house DNA tests. There's always computer programs. And, and people pride themselves at times in finding out that they're related to someone famous, uh, finding what their bloodline is. Well, to the Jewish people, their great pride was that Abraham was their father. That their great pride was that Abraham's blood was running through their veins. They were children of Abraham. But what they failed to understand was that being a child of Abraham through a bloodline was not enough to save them. They needed to be a child of Abraham through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he was going to bless the nations through Abraham. And these wouldn't just be people through his bloodline. These would be all the nations, Jew and Gentile, people who would come to faith through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him and him who dis dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let me ask you a question about Genesis 12. How many if-then clauses are in that? How many times does God say to Abraham, well, Abraham, if you do this, this, and this, then I will do this, this, and this? And friends, the answer is absolutely zero. <laughs> God makes a covenant promise to Abraham based entirely on the faithfulness of God to keep that covenant promise. God says, if people curse you, I'm going to curse them. If they bless you, I'm going to bless them. But not once does God say to Abraham, listen, if you don't do what I say, then I will not use you. And that's a good thing for Abraham, because if Abraham's security rested in his ability to perfectly obey God, he would not have security. He would be very insecure in his faith. Because think of what happens with Abraham. Now, this is Genesis chapter 12. Shortly after God makes this promise to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. Now when they go to Egypt, there's a wicked ruler there, like many wicked rulers before, who were Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh at that time had a reputation that Abraham knew about. And Abraham knew that because his wife was beautiful, that there was a good chance Pharaoh would want to kill him and take Abraham's wife Sarah to be his own. So here's how Abraham decided he would fix that. He lied and said she was his sister. And so now, Pharaoh can take his sister to be his wife, not kill Abraham because he's just the brother. And in doing this, Abraham has absolutely no faith in God. 
He's not trusting God at all. He's trying to save his own skin. And in doing so, he jeopardizes the very plan of God, which was to bless the nations through the offspring of he and Sarah. But this isn't the first time that Abraham struggles with faith. Not long after this, God's made a promise to Abraham that he's going to bless the nations through him, that he's going to give he and Sarah a child through which the nations will be blessed. Problem is, Sarah's old. Sarah's barren. Sarah's not having a child. So again, Abraham lacks faith, takes matters into his own hands, finds someone else and gets them pregnant, thinking, well, I guess I'll just have to see a lineage through this person instead. God says, no way. And in fact, that relationship causes all kinds of problems. And yet it doesn't stop there. Abraham struggles another time. You would think he would have learned in Egypt, but another time he lies and says Sarah is his sister. Abraham struggles time and time and time again. The point of that being this. If Abraham's faith rested in his performance, then Abraham would have a very insecure faith. But Abraham's faith rested in the promises of God. And friends, your faith today rests in the promises of God. The call on your life today is not, go be perfect. (laughs) The call on your life today is not, be perfectly faithful in all you do. The call on your life and my life today is trust in a God who is perfectly faithful to us. And when you struggle in your faith, and you will struggle in your faith, trust in the one who does not struggle in his faithfulness towards us. Saving faith does not rest in our performance, in our works, It rests entirely in the promises of God. That is why the writer of Hebrews can say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because I do not see tomorrow and I do not know tomorrow, but tomorrow is in God's hands. And God's blessing on my life is in God's hands. And I don't have control over the hands of God. God has control over what He will do. I do not know what tomorrow holds, but I know the one who holds tomorrow. And if my faith just relies on me and what I can do, I will lead a very miserable and frustrated existence. But there is a better way, and the Scripture calls us to it. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this in Hebrews 13.5. He reminds us of the Lord's words. The Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, that is where our saving faith rests. You will have problems in this world. You will have people you love that will leave you and will forsake you. You will be stabbed in the back. You will be lied about. You will be talked about. You will be forsaken. You will be stricken. You will suffer trials. You will have bad things that will happen to you. The promise of God is not that those things will not happen. The promise of God is that He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. That we can have confidence in our relationship with the Lord. And no matter what tomorrow brings, He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. So what can man do to me? What can sickness do to me? 
What can cancer do to me? What can people do to me? And the writer of Hebrews says, it doesn't matter what they do to me. The Lord is my helper. I will trust in Him. And friends, if your trust is in anyone else, they will fail you. We fail. We can try as hard as we want. We fail, but God never does. That's why the writer of the Psalms in Psalm 46 can write this song that we are to sing. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that the earth was just giving away, that everything in your life was falling apart? Do you ever wake up and think, I don't, I don't even want to acknowledge that yesterday happened. If I just stay in this bed, maybe it will all go away. The, the psalmist says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains are trembling and swelling, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Friends, God is the only one we can trust in and depend on, and He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. The chances are for most of us, outside of being in the midst of an earthquake or something, that the earth's not going to give way out from under you. But we can feel like it will sometimes. And we can feel like things are just so bad that all they're going to do is ever get worse, and we can get very anxious and very worried. And oftentimes when we do this, we, we fail to remember what God's promises are, that, that He's not going to leave us or forsake us, that He's our very present help in our time of trouble. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon once gave an illustration to kind of point this out. He said, imagine an old seaman there on the coast of the English Channel, and he's watching the tide go out. And imagine how ridiculous it would be for him to watch the tide go out and then begin to fret and to worry that the tide would never come in again, that the English Channel would dry up and that the French would walk across and conquer all of England. But he said, that's exactly how we are with God. We are like someone standing on the seashore watching the tide go out and fretting that it will never come back again. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been to the ocean? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever seen the tide go out? What happens next? The tide comes back in. And guess what happens after that? The tide goes back out. And what happens next? The tide comes back in. And friends, that is life. You will have hard times and you will have good times. And you will have ups and you will have downs. And our faith does not rest. And whether we are up or down, low or high, our faith rests in the promises of a God who says He will never leave us and He will never forsake us. And even if the tide goes out and never comes back in, He will never leave us and He will never forsake us. He is our very present help in our times of trouble. And that is why saving faith rests in His promises. Not in our whims, not in our emotions, not in our ability to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. Our faith rests in His promises. Which brings us to the next point, point three. The result of these things then, saving faith, should result then in a desire for obedience. Now again, this is where there can be some confusion where we think, well, 
Well, in order to really have saving faith, I need to be perfectly obedient, and I can't be perfectly obedient, so I'm insecure in my faith. And the scripture says, no, when you have saving faith, you should have a desire to obey, but you'll never be perfectly obedient, and perfect obedience can never bring faith. Reformer Martin Luther said it this way, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And so when we have genuine saving faith, that changes us, that changes our heart, that gives us a new appetite, new desires, and with those, we should desire to obey God. This was the point that Jesus made so often to the religious leaders of his day. That these Jews who prided themselves on being sons of Abraham, and yet they lived like sons of the devil. And Jesus points this out to them. For example, John chapter 8. In John 8, 19, the Jews are defending themselves against Jesus and his criticism of them that their walk did not match their talk. And their response to Jesus is, well, Abraham's our father. <laughs> I mean, don't you know who our, who our relatives are? We're, we're descendants of the great Abraham. Who are you to question us? And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. He points out to them that their walk does not match their talk. And to be a child of Abraham is to have the faith of Abraham and to do the things that Abraham did. Now again, Abraham was not perfect in his obedience. But Abraham was marked by a desire to obey the word of God. Friend, do you have a desire to obey God's word today? So often in the Christian faith, we, we tend to measure things by are you obeying? But that's not the question. The question is, do you have a desire to obey God? See, you, you can seek to obey, the God, to, to obey the things of God for all types of wrong reasons. Maybe you've been brought up to think, well, if, if you just do certain things and don't do certain things, you'll be okay. You have been trained to conform and to be obedient, and yet your heart has not changed. Now, the question is not, are you obedient? The question is, do you have a desire in your heart to obey the things of God? Because what God's Word says is that when we respond to the gospel with saving faith, God gives us a new appetite and He gives us new desires. Gives us a new heart. That's why Ezekiel says it this way, as the Lord speaks through him. God says to Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Now notice the order. God says, first, I'm going to do a little heart surgery here. First, I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. What's he saying there? He, he gives us a heart to believe. He, he breathes life through the Holy Spirit into us. And then, with that new heart, he says, then you should walk in my ways and obey my statutes. So you're not going to obey your way to heaven. You're not going to perfect your way to faith. That comes as a result of God working in us and even giving us a desire to obey the things of God. So again, the question is this. When you hear the Word of God, do you desire to obey it? This is a mark of saving faith. For example, Psalm nineteen fourteen, The psalmist says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
do you care what comes out of your mouth? Do you care about the desires of your heart being pleasing to God? Do you care about the words coming out of your mouth being pleasing to God? Do you desire for the meditation of your heart and the words that come out of your mouth to please God? Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Do you desire for people to experience the grace of God when they hear what comes out of your mouth? Are you concerned about what you say in people's presence and what you say about them when they're not there? And when you read these passages and you become aware that, wait a second, what I said the other day, that was corrupting talk. What I said about the other day, that, that was not something that should be acceptable to the Lord. When you become aware of that, are you convicted by it? Do you grieve it? Or do you just double down and get defensive about it? Or do you lie about it? Are you even being honest with yourself? Do you know what you sound like? We're so much quicker to look to others and say, well, look at them. Well, did you hear about that? Or, you know, we'll make it spiritual. We need to pray for so-and-so. But, friends, the Scripture says, look, look to yourself. Are the words of your mouth and the meditations, uh, meditation in your heart, is that something acceptable in God's sight? Is there corrupting talk coming out of your mouth? Are your words grace to those who hear them? And if they're not... Do you desire for them to be? That's the mark of saving faith. And if you have no concern about what comes out of your mouth, that is a mark that you may not have saving faith. That's what saving faith looks like, is a desire to obey. But again, hear me on this. It doesn't mean you're perfect. And that brings us to our fourth point. Saving faith is not a perfect faith, but it is a persevering faith. Saving faith is faith that endures. Notice Paul says here, verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He looks to Abraham again and says, Here's an example of one who's a man of faith. And if we're truly children of Abraham through our faith, then we should look like Abraham. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. Again, Abraham's faith was far from perfect. In fact, you know, I've done a little bit better than Abraham sometimes. To this day, I've never lied and said my wife was my sister. Not once. Now, I've been in situations where people thought my wife was my daughter. But I've not been tempted to lie in that way. I may have told some other lies. And you do too. And here's the point. When we start to do that, then we start to think, well, you know, nobody's perfect. And then we start to think, well, you know, at least I'm better than so-and-so. And we totally set aside that, 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 that we're not to look to saving faith to be some measure of perfection, but saving faith should be a measure of persevering. We should endure in our faith, and when we fall down, we should get back up, and we should repent, and we should trust in Christ. And when we fall down, we get back up, and we repent, and we trust in Christ, and we persevere, and we endure. And that's what the Gospels teach us. That this is the mark of a genuine believer. That Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What is Jesus saying there? 
Is Jesus saying that you can't be secure in your salvation? Now what Jesus is saying is the one who endures to the end is saved. So what is Jesus saying about the person who walks an aisle one Sunday when they're 12 years old, comes to church for a couple years, but then for the next four decades has nothing to do with the church? Jesus says the one who endures to the end is saved. Perseverance is the mark of saving faith. Not a decision, but dedication. Not walking an aisle, but walking by faith. These are marks of genuine saving faith that perseveres until the end. Friends, look around in your life. Who are the people that were once here or in another church and they want to have nothing to do with it today? And are you comforting yourselves with the thought, well, you know, but I, but I remember years ago what they said. I remember that commitment they were made. I remember their, being there at their baptism. They'll come back to that one day. Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul says look to Abraham and look at his endurance and look at his perseverance. This is what saving faith looks like. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 beginning in 13 speaking of Abraham and others these all died in faith what well, what a testimony what well, what a word to have on your tombstone richard allen carwile died in faith i'm content there and you should be too that should be the goal of our christian life not just that we talk about faith not just we make decisions today about faith but that we endure till the end in our faith that is what abraham did that is why the writer of hebrews says these all died in faith but what does that look like not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth friend do you feel like a stranger sometimes i hope you do because you are. That this world is not our home. That, that this world is so far gone from the things of God. If you don't feel like a stranger in a strange land, that's because you fit into this land and you probably don't have saving faith. But if you are persevering, you should feel awkward and out of place. It's what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham and others. They were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're not seeking a homeland, meaning that they're saying this earth is not my home. Because if they had been thinking that, he says, about the land from which they had gone out, they would have gone back to it. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Friends, is this the object of your faith today? Are you looking heavenward? Do you desire the things of God and not the things of this earth? That is what a persevering, saving faith looks like. And that is really, really hard sometimes. Because there are days when you will stand at the ocean shore and you will wonder, will the tide ever come back in? And there are days when it will feel like the earth is opening up beneath you. Friends, the question is, where does your security lie? And it lies in God, who is our refuge and our strength and our very present help in times of trouble.
God doesn't promise that the tide's always going to come back in. But let me read to you what he does promise. He promises that one day there's going to be a different shore and a different body of water. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that tide won't go out. It won't come in. It'll just be there. We'll be in the presence of God. For those that endure to the end, we will be saved. For those who trust in God's promises, we will have a saving faith. The call today is not to be a perfect Christian. The call today is to trust in a perfect Christ. Is that where your hope is today? Is that where your faith is today? And if it's not, here's the great news from God's Word. God's Word says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can set that rusty old religion that will never save you aside. (laughs) And today is the day that you can put your full hope and your full faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Today is the day that if you are struggling in your faith, that you can just trust in the Lord and persevere and know that this world is not your home. And though the earth feels like it is giving away sometimes, the Lord is your help, your very present help, and your time of trouble. Today is the day to be reminded that Christ will never leave us and He'll never forsake us. And therefore, we should put our full hope and trust and faith in Him. So would you stand with me as we pray along those lines, as we prepare to worship and prepare to respond to the Word of God. Father, I pray if if there's any here who's yet to see the glory of the gospel of grace, that, Lord, you would overcome whatever it is in their heart, in their mind, in their life that has fooled them into thinking that they're okay. They're not okay. They need the gospel. Lord, for those who perhaps have not been desiring obedience, they've been walking in sin, whether it's the words of their mouth, the meditation of their heart, whatever action or attitude, if it's there and it's not pleasing to you, Lord, would you draw them to repentance today? And Lord, would you help us all as we sing, as we worship, as we respond to your word, to respond as those who desire to love you and obey you and desire not only to live in faith, Lord, but to die in faith. Lord, would you put that picture in our hearts and minds now that that there's a day coming of glory. And Lord, would you help us to live in light of that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.